could I keep from whistling, as sung and whistled by the composer, Mr. John Y. Adley, at the display parlors of the Columbia Phonograph Company, Washington, D.C., accompanied on the piano by Professor Geisberg. Was as happy as a jaybird just sitting on the limb for a summer dog, a wadlet, to the brain to take a swim. For a turkey gobbler, a goblin, and a strutlin' like all sin. So why should I keep from a whistling when it is and is thin? Badger State Banner, 16 January, 1890. John Cook, a farmer living in the town of Oakland, was found in his barn the other morning hanging by his neck. No cause was known. About 12 years ago, his father hanged himself in the same barn. Badger Banner, 27 December, 1894. The family of Henry Miller of Cedarburg is sorely afflicted a six-month-old child died of diphtheria a week ago, and now a seven-year-old is dead. Two weeks ago, previous, two children had died, all of the same disease. One child survives out of the family of five, and that, too, is down with the disease. Badger Banner, 12 July, 1900. Mary Carbon, wife of Wenzel Carbon, a farmer on the town of Neva committed suicide by eating the heads of four boxes of matches. She was only 16 years of age and had been married last fall. Frederick Windex, an aged farmer, committed suicide at Janesville by downing himself in the pool where his little daughter had been accidentally drowned two years ago. Badger Banner, 30 October. 1890. Esther, her story. 
Esther's father hung himself from a rafter in the barn at night. Her mother ate lie in the morning. She was orphaned at nine years old and alone on the farm. So when the peddler came, a salad of sounds, jangling and clattering loads of hanging pots and kitchen utensils, ready-made underwear and calicoes knock-a-block in so many drawers, smoky bottles of medicine clinking in cupboards, she was happy to see him. Finding she was alone, the peddler invited her to go with him, and being alone, Esther said yes. They went a long distance. They traveled out of the township and beyond the county and into another, where the trees had long ago been logged by the river that is wide, whose bank is sandy, and found farms, poor farms, that stunted corn in their sandy soil. So stunted was the growth that the years were dry before they were mature, and could hardly feed the cows, and were worthless for cornmeal or cash. There she waited behind the dashboard as the peddler leapt down before the household and gave his song and dance, and plied his wares. He did not stop to try, even when money was lacking. He took trade in goods and always got the better of the deal. He smiled and tipped his hat and called the woman Milady and called the farmer Squire. They passed through the county and came to a river which was its boundary and took a ferry from the wilderness to a city that lay on the other side. Esther had never seen a city. Esther did not know that so many people ever lived so close to each other, more than three thousand, so the peddler told her, giving her the reins to the wagon and pointing to the sights and directing her up Main Street. The city was as big as a dozen towns all put together, and he told her how parts were like towns, this part for the trades, this part for bars and brothels, this part for houses and churches and schools, and this part for smiths and horses and working men. In this last one, near the outskirts, at the furthest end of Main Street, where the woods began again, the peddler told Esther to pull up the team, and he jumped off the board to the street and turned to help her climb down, lifting her easily by the waist to place her on the ground. She stood before a garishly painted house. It was painted like an Easter egg. It was a house of sleeping rooms for traveling men like her peddler. Signage at the door named the place, Mrs. Beaver's Boarding House. She could not read, but this is what the peddler told her. He took her to his room. That evening they went down to supper at the common table. The peddler introduced her to the other men, while Mrs. Beaver's serving girls scurried about placing and removing platters and dishes, laden or readily emptied, with heaps of meats and sliced loaves of bread and piping hot potatoes, a veritable basin of them. Mr. Minx, who was almost as short as Esther, bartered horses, he explained. Mr. Otto sold only knives, it was told. Mr. Musk was a ragman. Mr. Lynch pandered Bibles. And Professor Mouse, sporting a bejeweled watch fob across a soft brown velveteen vest with pearl buttons, his sumptuous belly suspending it over his ample lamp, was a clairvoyant, prognosticator, and formerly ambassador to the court of St. James, or so he advertised.
As they were formally introduced, they each and individually stood beside their plates of food and bowed toward her. One was missing, said the peddler, and the others loosely referred to him as our eldest brother. How glad he would have been to meet her, they agreed. They all called each other brother, freely and warmly, throughout their dinner, across the exhalation of their cigars and in the cups of their whiskey. And after dinner, on the porch, each one, plump with repast, unfastened his pants button and slouched in languor and liquor and told his cordial tale. The peddler put Esther to bed. She slept for a long time after he had gotten up the next day. She slept all day, even until it was dinner time again when the peddler came to wake her. She was very hungry, and the traveling men teased her as she ate. She ate two bowls of the soup course, and three portions of the fish course, and two portions of the roast beef, as well as all the potatoes and squash and peas that she was given, and three slices of bread. The peddler gave her a whiskey after supper, and the men toasted her health and declared their astonishment at her great appetite. She felt very happy. In the months that followed, while she always slept in the peddler's bed at the boarding house, she went on sales trips with each of the traveling men. She learned from each the skill of their selling, how Bibles sell by appealing to guilt, how knives sell by flattering the wives, how horses were traded by making the farmer think that he had better brains than the dealer, how rags were taken by feigning poverty and misery, even to the poor and miserable. Esther, taking her part, pretending a waif and an orphan to be, which, of course, she was. Her favorite enterprise was certainly the sale of clairvoyance, for the professor's carriage was far more splendid than the others, a gypsy-like bow-topped caravan with ornamental fretwork upon its overhangs in polychrome signage, impractical and verbose. She loved his patter far more than all the others. Even the peddler's witty unction seemed indecorous and ordinary compared to the professor's eloquent and lofty and intellectual charm. Somehow the professor always knew to say what his customers most wanted to hear, or most feared to hear, which was in that case what the customer most wanted to hear, and prognosticated accordingly a horror that was fitting and expected, or a triumph that must be hoped for. In all cases, the professor knew by looking inside his own eyelids and reading against them the glyphs of credulity, as he called them, for the veracity, as he called it. Inside the dim carriage cabin on settees of burgundy velvet, immured by a velvet drapery, drawn across the entry, a fizzing concoction of naphtha, which he averred to be Greek fire, cast an eerie greenish glare on their faces. Esther marveled, as did the customer, to see the professor's eyeballs then rapidly dart under his closed lids, as if reading right to left the writ of God. And just when the chemical light suddenly stopped, from this dramatic darkness, 
the professor would intone, the veracity is such or so and so, such judgments as these, your daughter shall walk again, she shall bound like a deer and dance like a dervish, or your wrath shall surely shed like a soiled sheet, and your skin shall radiate like milk in the moonlight, or fear your mother-in-law, for she bears a serpent in her womb for you. It was on one such trip with the professor that it began to rain. It rained for hours, a very heavy rain, a rain that made the leaves to droop and the bushes and the trees to hunker, and all the birds to cease to fly and the animals to cower and wince. It was a rain that made distances impossible to see and caused the professor to pull off the road to avoid the miring mud. But when the streams of water in the ditches began to rise, he drew back on and whipped his horses with the traces to urge them to slog to higher ground. He saw a round-topped hill on which to take his carriage and up the rain-sheeting grassy slope, slipping and stumbling, they managed to climb and took refuge beneath the enormous umbrella of an ancient chestnut at the top of the hill, where the professor unharnessed the horses, their hides steaming in the cold air. Back in town, the townspeople called this the hundred-year rain. They soon saw the river rise over its banks, and inch by inch then, Yard by yard it spread into the town, and the water level lifted higher and higher. Soon the river ran into the first floor at First Street, and then almost all the town was reached. At the end of the town, at Mrs. Beaver's boarding house, the traveling men were concerned. Professor Mouse had not returned, and all of them worried for Hester. The peddler declared that someone should go find and rescue her, for the hundred years' rain would not stop for days. He knew it. He told them how it had been more than a hundred years ago when it had last rained like this, how before this city existed this same countryside was flooded and stayed in a flood for a weeks, how then when his trade had been solely with the Indians and solely for furs, he had lived a long time in a tree to survive. They'd heard this story before and stopped him impatiently so that he would straightway tell them what they must do, for the river had risen near to the porch of the boarding house, and still it rained, and soon the water would come into the house too, and Mrs. Beaver was coaxing her guests to leave the dining room and goading her servants to carry the furniture up the stairs. Soon they were unceremoniously emptied off their chairs by Mrs. Beaver's maidservants, and standing beside a dining table that was hoisted away, the peddler declared decisively that one of them must be ventured immediately to find Esther, while the others tried to save their horses and preserve their wagons and wares. He picked Mr. Minx to go. They gathered at the doorway to see him off and wish him good luck. The water had risen to the knees of his horses, and still it rained and was almost to the hubs of his wagon wheels, and still it rained. But he hoped to travel out of the flood if he went away from the river and toward the direction 
that the professor and Esther were last seen traveling. While he was gone, the traveling men who stayed behind helped one another to move their goods out of the wagons, and splashing through the water that now washed ankle-high onto the first floor, they carried what they could salvage to their upstairs room. Of greatest concern were the Bibles which would mold, and the knives which would rust, and cloth and clothes of the peddler that would be ruined. They got all that they thought important to keep dry, and still it rained. Mr. Minx was gone for the whole of the night, and still it rained. Mr. Otto, Mr. Musk, and Mr. Lynch became more and more anxious, so anxious that they woke the peddler even before the sun rose. Though in the gloom of the rain, who could tell day from night? and declared in unison that they must attempt the rescue now, as they doubted that Mr. Minx had been successful. Send us all, they said. Mr. Otto, Mr. Musk, and Mr. Lynch looked determined. Nothing the peddler said could deter them. Minx had the best of the horses, argued the peddler. If any could get through this flood, it would be them. They shook their heads. And his wagon was better than any of yours, said he. They frowned and shook their heads. You said he had the best horses, Mr. Otto said. Had, past tense, gone by, like they're already dead. It's idiom, said the peddler, not fact. You said it, said Mr. Musk. And it's true. It was said, and having been said, it had a Reality of conception, and so reality itself. Peddler could not deny this. We must do what we can, said Mr. Lynch. And Mrs. Beaver, who had been eavesdropping from the hallway all this time, could not restrain herself, and though unseen, she was heard by all of them. Yes, yes, save little Esther. The peddler shook his head, but said he could do nothing, and would do nothing to stop them, and he lay back on his bed and pulled the covers over his shoulders and turned his face to the window where still it rained. Mrs. Beaver waded into her kitchen where the water was now thigh high. She found bread and ham and cheese and made them sandwiches. She wished she could have made them coffee and a fit breakfast, but her stove was half under water. Meanwhile, Mr. Musk led the better horses from the barn while Mr. Lynch got his gun and wrapped it in an oilcloth, and Mr. Otto packed some dry clothes for Esther out of the stores of the peddler's wares, and a couple bottles of medicine in case they were needed, and a couple more for good measure. Mr. Musk had led five horses out to the front of the house and sat astride a gray on his saddle. The water was now up to the horse's belly, and still it rained. They were ready to depart. Behind his back, as he stood on the porch, Mrs. Beaver put the sandwiches into Mr. Otto's rucksack, which he had put on over his slicker. Mr. Lynch, who had no slicker, stood beside him glowering at the incessant rain, while Mr. Musk, who also had no slicker and looked soaked to the skin, made a sarcastic comment. Mr. Otto turned to thank Mrs. Beaver and on an impulse kissed her. It should not have come as a surprise, but it was a tenderness that had been repressed until this moment. Nevertheless, Mrs. Beaver received his kiss warmly and 
told him to take care, a tear in her eye and a blush to her cheek. Mr. Lynch strode to his horse with his gun held over his head. Mr. Lynch hates the rain, but still it rained. They waded their steeds into the woods, and when out of her sight, Mrs. Beaver looked up at the steely sky and shook her head. It was now the third day of rain, and still it rained. When shall it stop? She thought to close the front door and then realized it was a silly notion, and sloshed to the stairs and went to put on a dry nightgown and go back to bed. There was nothing to do but wait for this to end. Still it rained. Sleeping all the day did not relieve the misery of it. The water in the first floor now came to the first landing on the staircase and debris from other houses, underclothes and wooden spoons, hats and books and colliers' magazines, floated on into the house along with the corpses of dogs and cats and rats. A dead horse drifted up to the porch and stayed with lapping water against the house. On the morning of the fourth day, the rain changed to drizzle, which with pinpricks pocked the calming flood. The flood had finally topped out. By the evening, the rain had subsided to a mist, and on the morning of the fifth day, there was no rain, but a very heavy fog. The house was isolated from all the soundless world, as though very high in the clouds, as though in suspense of time and space, as if in purgatory, and our forlorn inhabitants were the penitent prisoners who endured the interminable sameness of time and indistinct space for a remote event of their release, awaiting morosely that last judgment which, even if it were the one most dreaded, would finally relieve them of the boredom of this eternity in their bedclothes, bedded for eternity. Everything felt damp, even those eternal bedclothes, and there was a film of water on all surfaces of furniture and beads of it on the brass pipes of the bed. Pages of last week's newspaper were limp as overcooked noodles and tore apart to be turned. Shoes were sodden with the vapor their leather had absorbed. So on the morning of the sixth day, when the fog had lifted and they could see down Main Street where others came to their second-story windows to hail and declare themselves survivors, Mrs. Beaver and her girls felt encouraged. The peddler roused himself and dressed. He smoked his pipe as he leaned out the window and perused the flood. It was everywhere a watery world but he could see that even then the river was drawing it back and taking it away. There was a dark mark on the trees at the edge of the woods, which was higher than the water's current level. And as he looked in that direction, he was surprised, then confounded, then glad to see a swimmer, a man in his long woolen underwear, swimming from tree to tree, resting as he clung to a tree, then swimming to another resting and swimming and coming closer. He saw at last it was Mr. Musk. 
Mrs. Beaver and her coterie of maidservants fussed and helped the drenched and dripping Mr. Musk up the stairs and into his room, and wrapped him in a wool blanket as he shivered and told them the tales through his chattering teeth. How they had all been unhorsed in an unexpected torrent some miles from there, and the horses themselves swept away. How Mr. Otto and Mr. Lynch had been swept away, spinning madly in the maelstrom midst the terrible rack of uprooted trees in a furious rush to God knows what or where or why. It was the last he had seen them, and he feared the worst. And but for the chance of a floating tree that drifted him toward these great woods, which were seen outside the window, he too would have been lost. Mrs. Beaver could not contain her grief, and the girls had to take her from the room to console her in decent privacy. The peddler tried to ascertain particulars from Mr. Musk in order to assess where this had occurred and when and whether and how he might arrange a party to search for them. But Mr. Mr. Musk felt that it was hopeless, and when he was asked whether he had seen any sign of Esther and the professor, he shook a rueful head and could not look the peddler in the eye, so ashamed he was for his folly and failure, as he knew now that the peddler had been right to discourage their vainglorious adventure. It was just then they heard the calliope, trilling and whistling and gaily piping its salutary tune Dixie. It was the steamboat Adonis, the great, handsome, luxury vessel castellated colossus of gambling, theater, and carnal pleasure, three decks high, overtowering all roofs, longer than a city block, wide as the thoroughfare, enameled glossy white as pure as heavenly clouds, and richly and profusely accentuated with hardware appointments of the most highly polished brass, proud ship, and wealthy enterprise of the one and only Captain Maximilian Robin, he whom all the traveling men revered to be their eldest brother. It made the heart of every one exult to hear it, seeing her yar and splendid, sailing up the street in the flood, for the very sky did open just then, shone blue, and the sun gloriously illuminated the great huffing turrets and beamed upon the lofty pilot-house where the bewhiskered burly captain himself in his gold-button, double-breasted naval uniform and jaunty cap waved to all. Zeus descending could not be more wondrous or more welcome. He steered the Adonis masterfully to the porch of Mrs. Beaver's boarding-house, and with a great noisome backwash of its reversed paddle-wheel, the ship shuddered from collision and held still. And immediately his crew of hardy deckhands let fall the gangway off its prow, which, with a great clang and a huge splash, washed water up the stairs and thrilled the giggling maidservants of Mrs. Beaver. So the boarding-house was boarded, as by a piratical vessel, and as the crew leapt into the house to chase and embrace the maids, it was well evident that they were more than just a little familiar with one another by their boisterous intimacies. 
For his part, Captain Robin disdained to touch the water, was not a man wont to get wet, even to bathe, preferring perfume over cleanliness, and never drank the stuff but with the tonic of whiskey to sanitize it. But he stood on the deck at the gangway and bellowed mellifluous boom, hailing his friends to hasten aboard. The peddler scampered on happily while Mr. Musk waded sullenly out of the house, clutching his bang blanket. "'What's this?' puzzled Captain, seeing the sorry, sad Mr. Musk in his soggy underwear. "'Where is the auto? Where our professor?' "'They are dead and gone, I fear,' bemoaned Mr. Musk. "'What?' boomed the captain. "'Twaddle,' said the peddler. "'They're marooned by the flood and can be found if you're daring.' "'Great gadfly of Socrates, sir, of course,' the captain replied. "'We go! We go!' Mrs. Beaver, calling out the window above their heads, insisted she must go also and the brave captain in an uncautious overflow of his natural gentility, good-breathing, overcoming predilection, uncomfortable and nauseous, stepped gingerly into the water himself to aid Mrs. Beaver and bodily bear her to the deck. They set off at once, the peddler guiding the captain by his deductions concerning the probable placement of his friends in need. The Adonis wheeled round the edge of the woods, skirting its limbs and scraping its housing as she came about and made a heading down Maid Street. Through the town she went, her, her calliope now gamely taking up, My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, and peoples at the second-story windows leaned out to cheer and wave and bade them all good luck, and Captain Robin promised to return, and everyone believed him. All will be well, his great baritone assured them. By the laws of Newton, I swear to you all, all will be well. Even if this were not true, it sounded so good to hear it from him, that at last, for as long as you could hear the calliope receding, long after you could no longer see the Adonis herself, you believed it to be true with all your heart. The captain was a man of his word, even if a gambler, whoremonger, and thief, and you could not help but like him. Traveling then in the sunlit bubble of sheer optimism, the Adonis turned upriver as the peddler, pointing to the shore after a few miles, pointed how, steering to what had once been a shore, they could circumnavigate great woods that lay beyond the town. The forest was mixed of maple and oak, a great woods left unfelled by the pioneers before their time, for reasons of some reflexive reverence. It is seen occasionally in America that money matters less than beauty, and it may be symbolic, as when a single white pine in a great stand is left because it is majestically huge, or may be impractical and the quiet statement of a single landowner. Or it may be the mistake of a railroad. But sometimes a whole tract, a bounty of beauty, is left intact and undisturbed, like this great woods, here which is older than the Indians and mysterious as silence in the snow. All were hushed as they passed the submerged woods, which even though 
flooded high and wide, yet lofted above them. The peddler guessed the torrent that took Otto and Lynch had tracked a creek that lay below them. Under so much water that you could not guess its bank, except by the presence of the top of a barn to the side away from the woods, where farmers had settled and cleared the land to the prairie. Keeping the woods on their right, and on their left the artifacts of flooded farms, and occasional trees which probably shaded submerged houses, they slowed to quarter speed to steadily scan the woods where the peddler guessed something would be found. The calliope was turned off, its pipes spending its steam, and they leaned over the railings to seek and to listen for signs of survival or disaster. Over the royal of the paddle wheel, it was still hard to hear except at the prow, and there it was that Mrs. Beaver first heard it. Faintly at first, uncertainly, then waveringly, but she soon saw, too, what she heard. There, in a tree, on the edge of the woods, clung Mr. Otto, in his underwear, singing, and Mr. Lynch, clinging to the branches above him, also singing in his underwear, singing in unison with harmonies. The calliope took up the tune as well. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen and down the mountainside. The summer's gone and all the roses falling. It's you, it's you must go and I must bide. But come ye back when summer's in the meadow. And when the valley's hushed and white with snow, and I'll be here in sunshine or in shadow. Oh, Danny boy, oh, Danny boy, I love you so. It was a gay reunion, though an awkward time extracting them from the tree for it was soon realized that the two men were very drunk, and in the water could be seen several bobbing bottles of the peddler's patent medicine. Lynch, to his very great distaste, fell into the water and had to be fished out, and stood upon the deck spitting and spluttering like a wet cat. Mrs. Beaver embraced Mr. Otto, who went on singing, and was simultaneously handled by Captain Robin and much of the crew, in a great crowd of affectionate hugging. Lynch sulked at a distance, muttering, and passed down to the boiler room to dry out. Meanwhile, the peddler had gone back to the pilot house to point and guide the pilot, to steer further on their course, to pass beyond the great woods and out into the wide-flooded prairie itself. Soon joined by the captain, Mr. Otto, and Mrs. Beaver, they all cast eyes on the horizon in the various directions to search for the professor, and soon to the port side Mr. Otto pointed and wondered aloud at what seemed a distant prominence in the water, an island, a miniature mountain like some fabled Mount Ararat in this God-caused watery world. 
and on the top of it he spied a single immense tree. So spinning the wheel mightily, the captain took charge and heaved the Adonis toward the anomaly, shouting down the voice pipe to the boiler room to stoke her up to top speed. Then being the first to see the telltale outline of the professor's gypsy caravan under the great chestnut tree, Captain Maximilian Robin pulled the rope of the steam whistle for one long, deafening scream, followed by five short blasts. The first being an outburst of sheer joy, and the group of five, a captain's call to quarters. As the crew scrambled afore ship like a military drill and made her ready to strike her landing, the Adonis propelled so swiftly toward the island that it looked to carry itself by its massive inertial force right over the top of the hill and down to the water on its other side. A shout down the voice pipe and Captain Robin's command hurled the great paddle wheel in reverse. And with the groaning backwash, the sudden cessation of forward motion threw everyone in the pilot house against its windows and spilled the crew on the deck like tumbling dice. Scrambling up, the crew quickly swung out the gangway and dropped it deftly to the island. Like a welcome carpet, it lay straight before the astonished professor and Esther beside him holding his hand. They ran together down the hill as their friends ran up to meet them, Zaz and kisses, loving embraces and hearty handshakes. Great gladness swept across humanity like wind on wheat. Yes, even the dour now dry Mr. Lynch grinned and shed true tears in the overwhelming happiness. While they celebrated and excitedly related their adventures, the cheerful crew ably and swiftly harnessed the horses to the professor's caravan and smartly stirred them to pull it up the gangway so that it could be secured to the deck for their homebound voyage. In the passion of their joy, none noted at first that the professor and Esther had not been alone on the island. But it was Esther who drew their attention when she turned back to the hill, and as the captain announced they must forthwith depart lest the retreating flood strand them, it was he who first stared after Esther, who, walking off the gangway, approached pairs and families of animals that had also gathered on the island, as she and the professor had, and which were timidly watching the people on the ship. She called out to them, and gesturing encouraged them to come and join them aboard. A stag, a doe, and her fawn, a lioness and her cubs, squirrels and weasels and rabbits, raccoons and mice, a pair of black bear, and out of the chestnut tree, even from the midst of birds that had flocked there, came also snakes, all drawn to Esther's sweet beckoning, and following her cautiously came up the gangway behind her, while the crew and all the amazed humans backed up kindly to give them distance and let them know that they shall be safe. Esther talked to the animals softly, and quietly, the captain commanded the crew to lift the gangway and make sail. Skittish, though the huffing turrets made them, and startled by the sudden thrash of the paddle wheel, each and all 
Deer and lioness, bear and rabbits and snakes and all of them were confident in the gentle reassurance of Esther and crowded on the prow around her as the Adonis swung wide about the island and took her heading back to the river, or where the river should be, beneath the flood. It was none too soon, for the captain foresaw the river was shrinking into itself and the flood receding with the reemergence of the landscape. The tops of farmhouses now shone well above the water. The tops of the front doors of them could also soon be seen. It would be a race against tides to bring them safely home, lest the Adonis run aground. But with devil-may-care and daring-do, that legendary day Captain Maximilian Robin famously brought the Adonis one more time, steaming up the main street of the city to the exuberant acclaim of its citizens who stood on its beached sidewalks beside the receding flood, now just a shallow stream in the course of the street, and welcomed their return like a victorious army on parade. The crowd, charmed by the captain's sparkling smile, stood amazed at the great ship defying nature before them and gawked at Esther on the prow and her fortuitous ark of predator and prey. Esther stood shepherd-like in the fold of her wonderful flock, lion beside deer, weasels cozy with snakes. Up Main Street, the ship chuffed heavily while the calliope played the stars and stripes forever. Then, when turning laboriously before Mrs. Beaver's boarding house, that portion of the crew, left behind with Mrs. Beaver's girls, appeared from various bedroom windows in their various romantic couples. Captain Robin, now feeling the muddy street scraping beneath its flat hull, barely but heroically, using all the mighty steam that she had left, swung the Adonis about on the very edge of the woods so that she came to rest in the middle of the highway, looking straight down Main Street. And dropping her gangway there, the deer bounded, snakes slithered, lions leapt, and all the animals scurried, trotted, and trundled down and took to the woods, a few of whom glanced back to Esther, who waved after them. Two days later, almost forgotten, what with all the hard work to clean up after the flood, Mr. Minks returned. Casually following his, buck, his buckboard were all five of the horses that had been lost by the other traveling men, plus five more that he had found and intended to sell. Now everyone was safe and everyone was happy. Thus the Adonis was situated in the city and became renowned, like a neoclassical city hall or a great Catholic cathedral or a Carnegie Public Library, to be the chief architectural prize of the growing metropolis, as well as its popular attraction for entertainment and gambling. Over the decades that it stayed on the street, the metropolis grew up widely around it, establishing a broad square to surround the stately ship with an oak-treed park. Main Street itself was paved and inevitably forged beyond the square and overtook the beloved woods, which were naturally all cut down, for there are limits to the restraint of money even before beauty. Eventually, the Adonis also became an attraction 
for mostly proper theater, sometimes offering Shakespearean vignette and main courses of light opera and small appetizers of heavier opera and all the latest and best vaudeville from Chicago. In time, Esther grew to be a young woman, lovingly adopted by the soon-to-be-wed Mrs. Beaver and Mr. Otto. And one day, she would own the Adonis herself, and as the mistress of Adonis, would one day marshal her to sail again. But that is another tale. Thank <laughs> you.